0: All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We have been working our way through the book of Revelation. We are nearing the end. We're down to the last two chapters now. And in the chapter previous to this, chapter 20, we talked about the millennium, the kingdom reign of Christ. And in a sense, that continues today as we move into Revelation 21 and read about the new heaven and the new earth. And this morning we'll be looking at the first eight verses of Revelation 21. Okay, the first eight verses. So if you're in Revelation 21, just follow along with me as I read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, these verses describe the new heaven and the new earth. And most of us have probably always understood these verses as talking about where we will live for eternity with Jesus after he returns to judge the world. But we'll see this morning that that's not primarily what John is talking about here. In fact, he's talking about now, this present age that you and I are living in right now. And if that sounds strange to you, I invite you to really examine these verses and the many other Bible passages that we will look at this morning to see for yourself. Study it. Test it. Don't just take my word for it. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I'll do my best to show you from scripture, but I want you to study it for yourself too. Let's start with the first two verses. And just to give you a heads up, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. So um, if you're gauging how much time I spend on the first two verses, it's not going to be equal on the rest of them. So don't panic. All right. Let me just read them again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we have here a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm suggesting that this is describing this present age that we are living in now. Why do I say that? Let me give you three kind of lines of evidence that we're going to look at this morning. The first is the context of the book of Revelation. And so if you've been kind of, following along in this series, that'll really help in understanding that. The second will be the Old Testament evidence. I'm just going to give you a little sample of it this morning. We don't have time to look at all of it because there's a lot of it. And then the New Testament evidence. And we'll just touch on a couple of things there as well. I'm going to do my best to keep it concise and give you just kind of a few examples from each. So first of all, the context of the book of Revelation. What's the flow of the story that we've been seeing through this book? Old Testament Israel has been unfaithful, so God is divorcing her. And this comes to a head in the ministry of Jesus, when the Jews reject Jesus, their Messiah, and they kill him. And the judgment for this unfaithfulness is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. It's the end of the old covenant. It's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. And John, in this book, has presented the city of Jerusalem as Babylon the whore. He uses this imagery because he wants the reader to see the evil of unbelief and unfaithfulness. But the whore will be replaced with a pure bride. And that bride, the bride of Christ, is the church. So in chapters 17, 18, and 19, we saw old Jerusalem Babylon the whore, judged. And then there was the marriage supper of the Lamb, and now the picture becomes even clearer, as we're told in verse 2, that the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down as a bride prepared for her husband. The bride is the church. New Jerusalem is the bride, so New Jerusalem is the church. That will become really clear next week, as the cities described for us in the rest of chapter 21. So in our text today, these first eight verses, we have a description of the new heaven and the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, which is the church. That description kind of goes all the way down through chapter 21 and into the first five verses of chapter 22, if you look at chapter 2 with excuse me 22 with me for just a minute okay look ahead chapter 22 what do you see in verse 6 Revelation 22 verse 6 and he the angel said to me these words in other words the description of the new heaven and the new earth the new Jerusalem the church that he's just been giving these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants What must soon take place? So John directly tells his readers, the things I've been describing must soon take place. And then look at verse 10 of the same chapter. Look at verse 10. And he, the angel, said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Again, John tells his readers in the first century, a few years before A.D. 70, the time is near. This is about to happen. So the first reason that we say that when John talks about the new heaven and the new earth, he's describing the present age is from the context of Revelation itself. And that really just follows the whole flow of the book that we've been seeing, okay? All right, secondly, the Old Testament evidence. The second reason... That we say John, when he talks about new heaven and new earth, he's describing the present age. The second reason comes from the Old Testament evidence. And as we've said so many times through the book of Revelation, if you want to understand what this book is saying, if you want to understand the imagery that John is using, you have to let the Old Testament speak. The Old Testament will explain it. That's where John is getting his language and his imagery his word pictures, his descriptions. And that's true in these verses, as it has been so many times through the book. And the main place that John is getting his language this morning of the new heaven and the new earth is from Isaiah 65. So turn there with me, okay? We'll come back to Revelation, but go back to Isaiah 65 with me. I want you to see it. Isaiah 65. Now, we've explained before, if you remember, the book of Isaiah is in three parts. The first part, the whole thing is written to Israel before they're taken into exile. But the first part of it, chapters 1 through 39, is before exile. It's a message for that time period. Then chapters 40 to 55 are a message for Israel while they're in exile. And then the last part, 56 to 66, is a message for when they come back from exile. Okay. So this part that we're looking at is in the last part, the last third, the message for after they are brought back from exile. And this part of the message is speaking about what it's going to be like in the future when the spiritual exile of God's people is ended. They've been separated from him because of their sin. When that spiritual exile is ended through the work of Christ, here's what it's going to be like. Okay, so start with me in verse 17. And we'll read down through verse 20. Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so there it is right there. That's the language that John is using in Revelation 21. He's pulling it from Isaiah 65, and he's talking about this same thing. I Behold, behold I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. So, it's the language of a new creation, that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem. So it's, it's a new creation and it's a new Jerusalem. That's the language we're hearing in Revelation 21, okay? I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Okay, so you can see there the language that John is using in Revelation 21. New heaven, a new earth, In verse 18, the creation of a new Jerusalem, which will be a joy. But when will this be? Is this the age that we're in now, or is this some point in the future? Well, verse 20 is helpful in answering that, because look what is present in verse 20. There are infants, so there's childbirth. There's Someone who dies at age 100 will be considered to be a young man. 100-year-old sinners who are experiencing the curse. So there's birth and death. There's aging. There's sin. There's the curse. Now tell me, are those things present in eternity? Of course not. When you spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, will there be birth and death and aging and sin and the curse? No, those things are gone. So whatever Isaiah is talking about, it's not the eternal state. It's something before that. In other words, it's the kingdom of Christ. And as we've seen in previous weeks, that is this present age. Isaiah is talking about this age before the end of the world. He's painting a picture of the effects of the proclamation of the gospel over time in this world. Since Satan can no longer deceive the nations, as we saw in Revelation 20, the gospel now goes out to the whole world, and over time, the effect is what Isaiah is describing. So someone might say, but the language here is talking about a new heaven and a new earth, not this one. So how can you say that this is talking about this world when it says a new heaven and a new earth? I'm glad you asked. Go back several chapters to Isaiah 51. Okay, Isaiah 51. So this is in the middle section of Isaiah. This is the message for them while they're in exile, promising that God's going to deliver them. And I want you to see how Isaiah uses this kind of language. Okay, look with me at Isaiah 51, and we'll start with verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 51, verses 10 and 11. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All right, so let's just pause and ask the question, when did God dry up the sea for the redeemed to pass over? Well, that's talking about the Exodus. So that's the nation of Israel in Egypt. God brings them out through the Red Sea and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where he's going to form them into a nation. He gives them his laws. He forms them into a nation. They will be his people, right? Okay, that's the context. Now look at verses 15 and 16 of Isaiah 51. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Okay, let's look at those verses carefully. In verse 15, when the text says God stirs up the sea, some versions translate that because the word can also mean this that he divides the sea. In other words, we're still talking about the Red Sea here. God's work in bringing his people out. And you probably have a note in your Bible on verse 16 that the word establishing, when it says establishing the heavens, is literally the word planting. This event that Isaiah is speaking of, when God brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and formed them into a nation, Isaiah calls that planting the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. That's when God said to Israel, you are my people. In other words, when God formed Israel into a nation, that was a new heaven and a new earth. He was forming a new order of things, a nation that would be his people, a nation that would be governed by his word, his law, I have put my words in your mouth, Isaiah says. The whole Jewish order, the tabernacle, the temple, the laws, the ceremonies, that's all compared to a new heaven and new earth that God planted or formed at Sinai. So when Isaiah uses similar language in chapter 65, a new heaven and a new earth, It's a new order of things. It's a new people of God that will have his law and his covenant. It's the church, the bride, the city, the new Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah is describing. Here's how John Owen, the great Puritan pastor, explained this passage. He says, the time when the work here mentioned, of planting the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth was performed by God was when he divided the sea, verse 15, and gave the law, verse 16, and said to Zion, thou art my people. That is, when he took the children of Israel out of Egypt and formed them in the wilderness into a church and state. Then he planted the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth, made the new world. That is, brought forth order and government and beauty from the confusion wherein before they were. This is the planting of the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth in the world. And there are plenty of other places that we could go to see this kind of language as well. But hopefully those examples bear out that the Old Testament evidence shows that in Revelation 21, John's new heaven and new earth is describing this present age and the church as God's people. So how about the New Testament evidence? Well, we've seen the context of Revelation, the Old Testament evidence, indicate John's language of the new heaven and new earth is speaking of this present age. How about the New Testament? I'm just going to mention two passages in the New Testament. Here's the first one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, you'll see I put the words, he is a, in parentheses. That's because they aren't really there in the Greek. The translators just add that in to make it read more smoothly. But it really just reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. It can just as easily be read, if anyone is in Christ, he is now part of the new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Or we might say it this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is part of the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the church. But it's a present reality. Paul uses the language of new creation to describe the present reality that is true of believers It's true of you and me today. One more passage, Hebrews two, verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now in the context, the author of Hebrews is saying that all things have now been subjected to Jesus who is a man, not an angel. He's the God man. But what is the world to come? Well, in the context in Hebrews, it's clear from the argument that it's this present world, the new creation, the new heaven and new earth. It's being contrasted with the old world that's corrupted by sin. Here's how John Calvin comments on this. He says, let us suppose two worlds, the first, the old, corrupted by Adam's sin, the other later in time as renewed by Christ. It hence now appears that here, in Hebrews 2.5, the world to come is not that which we hope for after the resurrection, but that which began at the beginning of Christ's kingdom. But it will no doubt have its full accomplishment in our final redemption. It's that growing reality of the kingdom that we've talked about. As Calvin explains, the new, new creation begins technically in the ministry of Jesus. It will be finally complete and fulfilled one day. And in the meantime, it's growing and expanding. So in Revelation 21, John presents the new creation as beginning in AD 70. It's a little different. But the reason is he's contrasting it with the Jewish age, and this fits his literary purpose in the book of Revelation because it marks the transition from the whore to the bride, from Israel to the church, from the old covenant to the new covenant. But the point is that this transition from the old covenant to the new heavens and new earth, the new creation, the new covenant, begins in Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension his reign, and the judgment on Israel in AD 70 that tells everyone that he's on the throne. So we see that the context of Revelation and the Old Testament evidence and the New Testament evidence all point to this fact that the new heaven and new earth have already begun. It's the kingdom of Christ that we are part of now. All right, in Revelation 21, at the end of verse 1, we have the comment that the sea was no more. All through the Bible, the sea often represents chaos and death and those who are not part of God's people. So think of the waters of creation that had to be, you know, the, the, the order was brought out of them, the waters of the flood, the deadly Red Sea, the Jordan River that had to be crossed. And the sea was the place from which many of the enemies of God's people came, and it's, it's the place where one of the beasts of revelation comes up out of. But now that the new heaven and new earth is formed, the new creation, the sea is put in its place once and for all. So we see, for instance, in chapter four and five, it's still, but by the end of the book, it's gone the sea is no more. There's no more opposition to God, and that will be the final end of Christ's kingdom when all his enemies are put under his feet. He's currently ruling and reigning, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, until he puts all his enemies under his feet. In verse 2, we have the new Jerusalem, the holy city, descending as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, who is the bride of Christ? Well, it's the church. So the holy city, New Jerusalem, is the church. If you have trouble accepting that, just glance down at verses 9 and 10 here in Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Okay, so I'll show you the bride. So now we're going to see the bride. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. When he says, I'll show you the bride, he shows him the city, the new Jerusalem, because that is the church, that is the bride. The bride is the city, new Jerusalem. So new Jerusalem is the church. As I mentioned earlier, we'll see more details about that next week. Let me just briefly mention a few passages that can help us to understand this this morning. Galatians chapter 4. In in this chapter, Paul's comparing two women in Abraham's life to two mountains and two covenants. So he's dealing with types and shadows here, okay? And here's what he says. Now, Hagar, remember Hagar was Sarah's mistress, and this is where uh, the mother of Ishmael. Okay, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she's in slavery with her children. So now the contrast, verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So the wife, Hagar, who does not receive the promise is like Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai is where Israel became a nation, where they received the law, where they received the Old Covenant. It's the old order of things, like we saw when we looked at Isaiah 51. And Paul says that Hagar and Mount Sinai correspond to the present Jerusalem. Now, when he says that, the old Jerusalem is still standing. So is the temple, And the sacrifices and all of that is is happening in Jerusalem at that point. And he's saying the old Jerusalem is slavery. But there is a different Jerusalem, Paul says. The Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Paul's saying that the church is from the new Jerusalem, not the old Jerusalem. The church is free, not in slavery. So when John makes this connection in Revelation 21, it's not new. It's saying the same thing that Paul already said. Another passage, and I'll have you turn to this one, is Hebrews chapter 12. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me just kind of remind you what's going on in the book of Hebrews. The message of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, okay? So there's the old covenant with the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the festivals and all that stuff, and there's angels and there's all that stuff. Jesus is better. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. The book is written to people who have come to faith in Christ, but they're tempted to go back to the temple, Maybe we should go back to the temple and be making sacrifices. Maybe we should still be doing the ceremonies, okay? And the author of Hebrews is writing to say, no, Jesus is better. Jesus is the fulfillment, okay? There's no need to go back to those things. So Hebrews 12, and let's start in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, okay? So we have a contrast here between the physical, the things that can be touched, and the spiritual, Old Jerusalem was physical, new Jerusalem is spiritual, okay? A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Okay, what is that talking about? That's talking about Mount Sinai when Israel was formed into a nation, okay? Verse 20, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, church, new believers, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the city that is the bride, the church. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The new covenant. When did this begin? When did the new covenant begin? In the ministry of Jesus. Jesus establishes the new covenant in his blood shed on the cross. Then Jesus ascends as the king of the new covenant. He takes his seat on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Then the new covenant promises that we see in the Old Testament are fulfilled at Pentecost when the ascended Jesus, now ruling and reigning, pours out the spirit on his people, the church, and the transition From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is completed when? When the Old Covenant finally passes away. When Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed in the judgment of AD 70. So you, the church, have come to be part of this New Covenant. We continue the end of verse 24, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. The blood of Jesus cries out that God's wrath has been satisfied for your sin. His blood speaks a better word because it's the word of forgiveness and grace. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Okay, catch that. The heavens and the earth. Now he's talking about The heavens and the earth that, like Isaiah said, were planted, established at Sinai. Israel, okay? This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Okay, so the removal of the old, what's shaken, that's the old covenant, The ceremonial and legal elements that made up the old covenant, those things are shaken, they're removed. And now it's the establishment of things that cannot be shaken. Well, what is it that cannot be shaken? What has been established in the new covenant? Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What is it that cannot be shaken? It's the kingdom of Christ that we, the church, have already received. We are already part of that kingdom. The kingdom of Christ cannot be shaken, and it has arrived in the new covenant, and you have come to this heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the church, the new covenant. Okay, that's verses 1 and 2. We'll move a lot more quickly through the rest of these verses because what we've seen now has really just laid the foundation and it should unfold more easily now. Verse 3 tells us, John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So this new Jerusalem, the holy city, the church, will be the place where God dwells with his people. And this is in contrast to, for instance, back in chapter 2, remember the seven churches, Pergamum, where Satan has his throne? Or in chapter 18, we saw that the old Jerusalem that hadn't yet been destroyed at that point had become, and this is how John says it, A dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every unclean spirit. In contrast to all of that, the new Jerusalem is a dwelling place for God. It's where God will have his throne. And God's dwelling place is the temple. But here's the problem. This city has no temple. If we look ahead at verse 22 of chapter 21, what do we find? Look at 21 verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. So God himself dwells there with his people. Another way to say that is you, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, you are the temple because God dwells with you. The spirit of God lives in you. As Paul writes, this is 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or he says it in the next letter he writes to them in chapter six of 2 Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, this should sound familiar, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul's quoting there from a promise that is made over and over and over in the Old Testament in places like Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 37. It's picked up in the New Testament as well. We're seeing it in Revelation 21. That promise is now fulfilled in the church, the new Jerusalem. And John tells us then, in verse 4, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay, well, that seems like a problem. How is that true if this refers to the present age that we're in now? It's true in principle now, and it will be true completely one day. It's like we've often seen it's the already and not yet. We saw in Revelation 20 that we are already partakers of the first resurrection, the spiritual resurrection that brought us from death to life. We were dead in our sins. We've been raised with Christ. So what is true now? Well, Jesus said, John 11, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the same author of our book in Revelation. He's saying the same thing. So for those in the New Jerusalem, the church, there is no more death. That means that when physical death does interrupt our lives, we do not grieve as others do who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4. Why? Because, as Paul writes, quoting Isaiah and Hosea, 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That is true now for believers who are in Christ. Continuing on then in verse 5, John continues, he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, we already saw what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Where Paul says that, Paul Paul is talking about the redeemed individual, John is saying it about the redeemed community, the church, the new Jerusalem. Don't miss what God is doing presently. He's making all things new. It's his restoration, renovation project, and we get to be part of it. Now, since we really already looked at that idea in the first two verses earlier, what I want to do here is just pause and read some comments from the great church historian, Philip Schaff. He was writing in the 1800s. and This is lengthy, but it's helpful, I think. I'm going to go through about six slides. So just kind of like tune in and follow along as I read this with you. Here's what he writes. To the Lord and his kingdom belongs the whole world with all that lives and moves in it. All is yours, says the apostle. Religion is not a single separate sphere of human life, but the divine principle by which the entire man is to be pervaded, refined, and made complete. It takes hold of him in his undivided totality, in the center of his personal being, to carry light into his understanding, holiness into his will, and heaven into his heart. And to shed, thus, the sacred consecration of the new birth and of the glorious liberty of the children of God over his whole inward and outward life. No form of existence can withstand the renovating power of God's spirit. There is no rational element that may not be sanctified. No sphere of natural life that may not be glorified. The creature... In the widest extent of the word, is earnestly waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God and sighing after the same glorious deliverance. The whole creation aims toward redemption. And Christ is the second Adam, the new universal man, not simply in a religious but also in an absolute sense. The view entertained by Romish He's talking about Roman Catholic monasticism and Protestant pietism, by which Christianity is made to consist in an abstract opposition to the natural life or in flight from the world, is quite contrary to the spirit and power of the gospel, as well as false to its design. Christianity is the redemption and renovation of the world, It must make all things new. That's the picture John's painting. Then in verse 6, John writes, And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Those words, it is done, echo the words of Christ from the cross. It is finished. It is accomplished. The promise of no more thirst is picked up from several different places in Scripture. For example, this author, John, wrote about it earlier in John chapter 4, when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. And by the way, remember the imagery here. In Scripture, when you see a man meet a woman at a well, there's a wedding coming, okay? Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac at a well. Jacob found his wife at a well. Moses found his wife at a well. So here, Jesus finds part of his bride, the Samaritan woman. She becomes shockingly part of his bride, the church, by faith in him. And what does Jesus say to this woman? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what he says there is the fulfillment of a promise in Isaiah. hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This promise of thirst being quenched, Isaiah says, comes as part of the new covenant, the everlasting covenant that Jesus brings. And just like Isaiah John says here in Revelation 21 that this is given without payment. Come those who don't have money. You can't buy or earn this. It comes by grace. It's not that there's no cost. Peter tells us that we were redeemed at great cost, the precious blood of Christ. But there's no cost to you. It's the gracious gift of God in Christ. In verse seven, John writes, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. In John's understanding, Christians are conquerors. There is no such thing as a Christian that is not a conqueror. You might remember that this language was all through the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three. And the promise that God will be his God and he will be God's son, the way that's phrased, that's a royal promise. God gave that promise to King David when he made a covenant with him. 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You could also find it in Psalm 89, which is another royal context. So when John says it here, it's reminding us that Jesus is the King of Kings, but it's also telling us, remember, you've been seated with him in the heavenlies. You are now ruling and reigning. Because you, too, are God's son. It's true of us now as well. And then the last verse, verse 8, provides a sober reminder for us. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. At the end of the day, there are only two categories. You are with Christ or you are against him. You are part of the church, the new Jerusalem, or you are not. If you side with Christ, then you will be with him for eternity. And all the promises we've seen apply to you. If you do not submit to him, then you will join Satan and the false prophet and the beast in the lake of fire for all eternity. The main thing that John is communicating in these verses that I want you to remember this morning is this. Believers live now in the new heaven and the new earth. Believers live now in the new heaven and new earth. We spent a lot of time this morning demonstrating that from Scripture, so I won't go back over it now. But instead, I want to ask this question as we draw this to a close What difference does that make? How should that change our lives? And I'll summarize the answer to that question and then I'll explain. Here's the answer. How should we live knowing that believers live now in the new heaven and new earth? Don't flee. Don't compromise. Fight confidently. Don't flee. Don't compromise. Fight confidently. Let me just take those one by one. Don't flee. When we fail to see the truth that Jesus is ruling and reigning over his kingdom now One possible consequence of that is that we flee. When we're faced with opposition, with conflict, with persecution, we flee. Instead of getting involved in our culture, we run away. We assume that it's the perpetual plight of Christians to get beaten, to fail. So why fight? Instead, we run away. The world's going to hell in a handbasket and we can't do anything about it, so why try? Why polish the brass on a sinking ship? All we can do is wait for Satan to take over and someday Christ will come and end it all. But until then, we're losers. It's the Eeyore strategy of the Christian life. I'd say thistles, but nobody listens to me anyway. So we flee. And the popular view of end times in many of our churches actually feeds this mindset because it teaches that things will just get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. So we hunker down, we fall back, we retreat, we wring our hands, and we just wait for him to show up. But that's not the message of Scripture. John writes that Christians are the ones who conquer. They're victorious. Sometimes that victory comes like Jesus' victory— through suffering and death. But it never comes through giving up and through fleeing. Second, don't compromise. When we fail to see the truth that Jesus is ruling and reigning over his kingdom now, the other possible consequence is that we compromise. When we're faced with opposition, with conflict, with persecution, we compromise. This is the live to fight another day model of the Christian life. We tell ourselves that we'll just wait until there's a battle we can actually win and then we'll fight. So the world tells you to use made up pronouns that accommodate someone's deviant imagination and you tell yourself, well, it's just a pronoun. This isn't the battle to fight. The world tells you that showing God's love means accepting all lifestyles. And you know that if you don't go to the so-called wedding, your family member will likely be really angry. So you tell yourself, well, this would be the loving thing to do. While all the time you know that God defines love as obedience to his commands. The more you compromise, the less likely it is that you will ever be willing to fight. It's just a slow, traitorous defeat. And remember what John said in verse eight, the cowardly and the faithless end up in the lake of fire. But John tells us that God rewards those who are faithful, true to him, loyal to him. That is biblical Christianity. It's a faith and life that recognizes that Jesus is Lord And Caesar is not. So fight confidently. Don't flee. Don't compromise. Fight confidently. By the way, I was just looking at that word this morning and realizing where that word comes from. That con means with. And the next part is fide, which means faith. So confidence is with faith. Fight with faith. You can have confidence because your faith is in Christ not yourself, this is his kingdom. He's already won, and he's currently putting his enemies under his feet. So stand up for the truth. Speak out for what is good and true and beautiful. Remember who this world belongs to. The evil men who seem so strong will fall. Jesus owns it all, and he will put all things to rights. So be faithful and courageous because this new heaven and new earth will fill the whole earth one day and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider what you have said in your word through your servant John, this is a fantastic description Of your kingdom. Help us to see the reality of your kingdom. Help us to live with confidence that we would not flee, that we would not compromise, that we would fight confidently with faith in you. Help us to live out the truth that with our words we say we believe that Jesus is Lord. Cause us to be faithful. And we pray this